When I consider the lessons of 2020, my head spins. So much anger, so much tragedy. All the cracks in our societal foundation were laid bare for everyone to see. Elected officials failed us, so often choosing self-interest over the interests of those who handed them the keys to the office. Where do we find hope, inspiration? You all know the answer to this. Frontline healthcare workers, teachers, clergy, folks running food pantries, senior centers, curing loneliness, finding pandemic pets, forever homes. Yep, we found an abundance of hope and inspiration in the land of the .org, in a sector defined by what is not. Yep, our sector is defined by what is not. Non-profit. It's, it's almost laughable when you think about it. The good deed doers in our society belong to a sector that has a name that tags it as being not about making money. Really? It's my guest today that brought this home for me. Today's episode includes a bit of philosophy and a big fat dose of inspiration for all of you in the land of the dot org. Do you remember homonyms from junior high school English? How about the word here? To listen, H-E-A-R, and a place, H-E-R-E. That's a homonym. The Catholic school nuns drilled these things into me. Today, our guest is going to introduce us to another one. To make money, profit, P-R-O-F-I-T, and then it's homonym, profit, P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Don't think overly simplistically about this word. It's not about predicting the future. It's actually more about imagining one. To paraphrase a professor at Columbia Theological Seminary, quote, to identify those parts of the world order that are contradictory to God, end quote. And if you broaden away from the theological, folks who see wrongs and whose life work is to shine a spotlight on that wrong and to call people to action, profit with a PH and an E. My guest calls those who work or volunteer for and or donate to a .org social profits. She's all about looking at the sector from a place of abundance and not scarcity, who you are and who you are not. Are you intrigued? I thought you would be. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. Learn more at joangary.com. I'm a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. For more than 40 years, Lynn Twist has been a recognized global visionary committed to alleviating poverty, ending world hunger, and supporting social justice and environmental sustainability. From working with Mother Teresa in Calcutta to the refugee camps in Ethiopia and the threatened rainforests of the Amazon, as well as guiding the philanthropy of some of the world's wealthiest families, Lynn's on-the-ground work has brought her a deep understanding of people's relationships with money, and her breadth of knowledge and experience has led her to profound insights about the social tapestry of the world and the historical landscape 
of the times we live in. Lynn, thank you for joining me and for sharing your insights with me and my audience today. Thank you, Joan, for inviting me to be part of it. I, I, I love this conversation already. <laughs> <laughs> so um, before we dig in, tell our listeners, if you would, please, uh, a bit about your professional trajectory. Your boots have been on the ground in so many parts of the sector. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Uh, yes, I, I want to make sure I don't go on and on and on because that's really like my whole life story. But I started working in this sector, I think, when I was a child. I did my first fundraising event when I was five. Uh, I wouldn't say it was in the sector. I didn't even know there was a sector. But I was in kindergarten, and I uh, I noticed that there was a budget crisis in our school. Not that I could even spell budget or add or subtract, but my sister was the star of the school play, and they decided they weren't going to have costumes and sets because there was a budget crisis, and it was going to be sort of this abstract interpretation. And she was the princess in a, a fairy book, a fairy tale story uh, book kind of play and she was so angry and so upset uh, and she was in the sixth grade and I was a kindergartner so I went back to school the next day and organized my kindergarten with my teacher's help of course to make um, chocolate chip cookies and lemonade stands uh, lemonade and we did chocolate chip cookie and lemonade stands around the school block until we raised enough money to pay for costumes and sets for the school play and we couldn't add or subtract but we could fundraise <laughs> and it's so so humble, uh, the Parent Teachers Association, the Board of Education, that the kindergartners raised the money for the school play, that it got the everybody off their dime and they, uh, they ended the budget crisis. And we were heralded as the source of the breakthrough. And that was, you know, years later. But I, I never forgot that fundraising is an act of love. And so from then on, I think I've always seen there's money for anything and everything that you want to do that's good for people, that that brings people to a higher plane. And so I began working for The Hunger Project. I was in charge of fundraising worldwide, raising hundreds of millions of dollars for ending world hunger. I got involved with uh, Indigenous People of the Amazon more recently with the Pachamama Alliance and involved in environmental issues. I got involved in empowering women and girls through the Nobel Women's Initiative and ending poverty. I got involved in peace issues. I've worked in Bangladesh and in India and all over Sub-Saharan Africa, now all over South America, and, um, and in America's uh, depressed cities. So I've seen where people um, are living and how they're living. Um, and I've seen how powerful it is to interact with them, learn from them, and become their equal partner in having their lives work. So the whole life that I've had has been a complete blessing. I even worked with Mother Teresa for a while in India, which was a huge teaching for me. So rather than tell you bit by bit, um, I started when I was five, I'm <laughs> 75. So for 70 years, I've been raising money, uh, supporting the nonprofit sector, what I call the social profit sector, because I hate that term nonprofit. I just yeah. use that to identify it as you did so beautifully. And knowing that really... What everybody wants to do is make this world a better place. I mean, everybody really does want that. Yes. And I know um, that. So I have a question for you. I want to go back to kindergarten. And those, first of all, I love chocolate chip cookies. So I never <laughs> miss an opportunity to want to talk about them, especially if they're warm right out of the oven. Uh, I talk about this with board when I do work with nonprofit boards. And I just wanted your reaction to it. Sort of the question is, what happens to people? So 
your kid comes home from kindergarten. So Lynn, you come home from kindergarten and, and presumably your folks are like busting their buttons. They're so proud of you that you worked with your class and the teachers and that you were a catalyst for ending a budget crisis. And all of it was because you actually decided you were going to raise money, right? And I see this time and time again with kids whose parents are just busting their buttons that their kids are raising money. And then they, then all of a sudden people grow up and they sit at a board table and you ask them to get engaged in fundraising. And they, they, so many of them, too many of them, run screaming in the other direction when they would be so incredibly proud of their children if they did exactly the same thing. And I know it's mm-hmm. not on our list here, but what, what do we stomp out of kids between that, between you and your chocolate chip cookies and the time that that person winds up at a board table, what happens? What did we do? Well, I think uh, we've given fundraising a bad name. I think it's part of the uh, kind of the, oh, let's see, the, the bad legacy of our, of our work. I think fundraising for me is sacred, holy work. It is the facilitation of the reallocation of the world's resources away from fear and towards what we love. It is the reallocation of the world's financial resources away from overconsumption, destruction of the environment, destruction of each other through, um, through weaponry and all the horrible ways that the world uses money and to facilitate the reallocation of those resources, to take those resources and reallocate them towards the health and well-being of our families, the health and well-being of our communities, the health and well-being of our environment, the health and well-being of all children of all species for all time. And to me, it's sacred, holy work. And wherever I go, uh, I, I say that to people. I love working with boards who are having that sort of fundraising malaise, or they call it fatigue, and let them know, my God, what you're, it's such a privilege to ask people for money because there's no one who actually ultimately does not want to be an altruist. That's my view. That it's covered over by thinking we can't make a difference. It's covered over by disappointment. It's covered over by discouragement. It's covered over by having, you know, kind of dis- all kinds of uh, heartbreaking things happen. But a great fundraiser is uh, someone who can help people heal from all that. I think fundraising is a healing profession, a holy profession, and a holing profession, and has people really rethink their relationship with the financial resources that flow through their life that don't belong to them anyway. They belong to all of us or none of us, and they just keep moving around. And we have the privilege as fundraisers and and everybody, philanthropists, fundraisers, and just regular people to reallocate those funds as they flow through our life towards the highest good. And everybody ultimately wants to do that. And that's what a fundraiser unlocks. It's a joy to ask people for money. As long as you're not hitting them up, trying to manipulate them, trying to get them to do something they don't want to do, but rather opening them an opportunity to see the power they have to make a difference with their life, their relationship, their money, and their love. So, you know, you just have to reframe it. Yeah. And then it's, then it's fantastic. And half the people, or more than half the people say, no, thank you, but that's okay. Right. Uh, go to the next one, you know? So um, it's interesting. I, I actually, um, I, I'm intrigued by your use of the word holy, and I, want, I, I would like to hear a little bit more about it. When I talk about it, I talk about it as noble. 
Mm. Right. I talk about it as noble, um, that it's noble to invite people to come closer to an organization that you care about by sharing their resources with it. Mm-hmm. And um, um, and so I'm just intrigued that, you know, whether a listener is a person of faith or not a person of faith, I'm just curious, you, you, you're intentional about your use of, of, of fundraising as holy work. I'm just curious. You're not a, you're not a clergy person. Um, uh, why that choice of that word? Curious. Well, I would say that when people give money, they're usually inspired. And the word inspired comes from in touch with the spirit nice. that moves things. Nice. And so in that way, I'm saying hey, sacred and holy because yeah. you get in touch with the eternal, actually, when you really are moved to share, when you're really moved and touched, you're inspired, you're in touch with some kind of kind of spiritual longing. It, you may not be a spiritual person, but something greater than yourself. And um, in that way, I think it's sacred work because that's actually when you're not manipulating. So a lot of fundraisers manipulate. I, yep. I, I just, I don't do that. And I do everything I can to um, have people see when they're, when they're crossing that line because they've got a target to meet or the organization's in need and they're, they're kind of desperate. Yep. But when we're really just presenting people with an opportunity to be who they are, tap into their natural generosity, lift the veil of discouragement and disappointment and having them see what a difference they can make there's a holy experience for people. And they may not call it that, but I do. Like a sacred moment of being in touch with who we really are and why we're here. Yeah, the, um, there's another um, analogy that I use, and I am not a Quaker. Um, I'm actually a Jew by choice. Um, but I really like the, the Quaker um, philosophy that each of us has a light, uh, you know, obviously other faiths would call it a soul, right? But that mm-hmm. we have a light. And I often, it's funny because I actually talk about it. I don't talk about it in a spirit. I mean, I, I frame it for, as coming from the spiritual, but I always talk about that when people get involved with a nonprofit that um, as a board member or as a philanthropist, um, their light gets brighter, Right. And I, I, so I think it's a, a, you know, we, we, you and I are, I think, sort of singing from the same song sheet. We might have different verses. Um, you know, we might have different lyrics in our verses, but I, I, I do think that that's true. And that, um, and that if you, um, if you meet someone and you can sort of, read them and see that they have a, a light for the work that you're doing, you can inspire them to uh, make a connection and have a relationship with your organization that will make that light brighter. So I, I think it's, it's very, very interesting. Um, so let's talk about um, your mission to reframe the sector. Um, it's pretty easy to see and understand that the phrase nonprofit is kind of nuts, actually, <laughs> that it's not befitting a sector um, with uh, that's filled with people who are determined to repair the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your thinking about how you came sort of not just, to, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's pretty clear that nonprofit to define something by what it isn't is, is never, is, is never a good day at the office, but, um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about what you mean by a social profit with P-H-E-T and the attributes of the social profit. 
Well, I'll just repeat what you already said in your introduction that um, I don't like being in the not sector or the non-sector, you know, non-profit, not-for-profit, non-governmental. So defined by everything that we're not makes us sort of ancillary, uh, auxiliary off to the side and that the real action is, you know, making money. And um, I think that's so unfortunate that the money culture is hijacked uh, the good work of people that want to repair the world, as you say, or make the world a better place or make a difference with their life and, and, and kind of put them off to the side. And so I, I just hate those terms. I don't like them at all and I don't use them. And so I've renamed the work we all do, including people who are doing good work and earning money for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, social profit people, people who are generating a social profit a profit that actually changes, transforms the, sh- the social landscape, the social fabric of life for the long-term future of life. And social profit, as you point out, can be, can be, uh, can be spelled P-R-O-F-I-T because there is a true profit when you contribute to a Montessori school mm-hmm. for your children or other children, you're creating a long-term profit for life. Um, or when you uh, contribute to the saving of a river so it doesn't go into a horrible pollution, you are really, that's a permanent contribution to the quality of life for, lo- for future generations. So it is a profit, social profit, but it's also standing for a future that you believe in. So you are a social prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, standing for and behaving consistent with the future that you stand for. And so I call the people like you and all the people listening to this podcast, social prophets, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, generating social prophets for the world. And and I want to banish this this title nonprofit because it demeans us, it diminishes us, it has us think we're not in the center of the action. When in fact, really when you talk to anybody, they wish, even the wealthiest people that are making a total fortune, they wish they could spend more time working with the kind of causes that have touched their heart. They wish they could give more time to the um, helping underprivileged kids in the ghetto or to help animal animal rescue or to uh, stop the the horrible abuse of uh, sexual violence in Africa or, you know, people who really get involved in these issues, even people with enormous financial resources, wish they could do give more of their time to the thing they care most about. So I think that's what everybody wants to be doing. And those of us who get the privilege of doing it nonstop, either as volunteers or as paid people, we are so fortunate and we should be in the center of the action rather than off to the side. Um, what have you learned about social profits? What, what have you learned about um, about their DNA, their attributes? That 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 um, is there something about them that there, are there common threads among those people who you qualify as social profits? And they, I'm just sort of curious. What, yeah, what's the DNA? Do you think? I mean, you've met, well, you know, you've met you've met um, people who run small organizations. You've met Mother Teresa. Um, what's the what are the ties that bind? Do you think? I think they're people who've turned their complaint into a commitment. Mm. And people who can turn their complaint about the world into a commitment are people who are willing to take responsibility for what they're upset about rather than blame and finger point and complain. 
they become committed to turning it around. And that's a quality uh, that really defines the character of human being that they are. You know, if you see something that is missing, often it's yours to provide it. Yeah. But maybe that's actually why you see it. And uh, rather than pointing fingers and being angry, they've gone to work to turn it around. And when you are in action, you, you, you stop complaining because you don't have time. You're too busy turning <laughs> it around. So that's the, the quality that I think is, is runs through the whole uh, population. Yeah, there's a, uh, no doubt many people listening um, started their organizations. And um, I think of them as the real remarkable people because um, just to tag on to what you said, they see a gap. It's like they have a kind of an x-ray vision, really, that they see a gap that not everybody else sees. So that's the first part of it, right? So they have this sort of special x-ray vision. They're, They're not missing it, right? They see this gap and then they are absolutely unable to sit still. Right. They cannot sit idly by. They have to figure out how can I, how can I solve for that? How can I fill that gap? Um, and um, I think that's what makes uh, founders so remarkable. Um, and um, I often think about um, the social profits, as you describe them, or I'm a big baseball fan. They're all they're all on the baseball field. And I think a lot about those people in the stands and mm. how much more they, how much more meaning and purpose they would derive in their lives if they um, got out of the stands and onto the field. And exactly, and I, yeah. What and, and and what do you think? What do you think gets those folks? Because this is another thing. I'm. It's a big mission for me this year. Is a sort of how do how do we put this sector front and center in 2021? And um, how do we how do we get more people out of the stands and onto the field? I, I wonder if you have thoughts about that. Well, I'll, I'll yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that. I, <laughs> I, call, I, I thought so. I call, I call myself a a, a, a pro activist mm-hmm. rather than an activist, and um, I I'm, I have a lot of respect for activism. I've been involved in it all my life, but I realize I'm a pro activist. I'm an activist for, not against. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I stand for. The future that I see is the future that is appropriate, ennobles the human family. And there's obstacles between where we are now and that future. But I'm not against those obstacles. I'm up to uh, dismantling them, hospicing the death of the old structures that no longer serve us, hospicing their natural death. They're unsustainable rather than attacking them while we midwife the birth of the new structures and systems that we know will serve us. And so a pro-activist has a, a, a life of real joy, actually. It's not that you don't see what's wrong. You do. You're totally engaged with it, but you're not attacking it. You're looking beyond what's not working to what the solutions are, what the world is that you want to see, and you stand there. And working from there makes you a pro-activist instead of someone who's angry, who's tearing things down, who's, who's, um, who's upset about everything. Um, so you tap into your passion rather than you upset. You tap into your strength rather than your fury. You tap into your um, your heart rather than your hurt. Mm. Um, it, it, it creates a different field of play. And if people knew that that's where their joy, their satisfaction, their fulfillment in life could come from, 
I think they would jump on the on the court, as you say, or on the field, yeah. rather than sit back in the stands and criticize and moan and groan and point fingers. And I think we re- absolutely have to make that transformation uh, right now. We just got to yeah. um, not incite people, but inspire them. Not be critical, but to um, offer the, the the possibility that we see that's that's being born right now out of the ashes of what's happening. And COVID is a fantastic ally in that way. It's a terrible, terrible thing. People are dying. It's absolutely frightening. And uh, uh, there's so much pain and suffering, and I don't want to step over that. At the same time, it is humbling us. It is sobering us. It is revealing what we haven't looked at. It is, it is has, having us face death, which has us value life. Yeah. Um, and the indigenous peoples of the Amazon say, say that at some primordial level of who we are, we've been longing, waiting for something to disrupt the way we're living, uh, something sacred enough and powerful enough to disrupt the way we're living that we couldn't disrupt ourselves so that we have time of reflection and we can rethink, reimagine, recreate, regenerate our species in a way that we have a sustainable future and are kind to other, as other species, to each other and to our mother. And that this virus comes from the mother, not as a punishment, but as an ally helping us to rethink the way we're living. And it's coming with all kinds of suffering. At the same time, great passages, great transformations do involve uh, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, just like a birth. In, in, in many ways, we may be giving birth, a very painful birth to a new way of being. Um, I think there are probably a lot of people that so desperately needed to hear what you just said. During COVID lockdown, I took time from Netflix binging to rewrite my book, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. I wanted to make sure that board and staff leaders had a new guide to help them to navigate a very different world, one where old rules don't apply and some new rules will be critical to thriving. This version is now in paperback and you can learn more at book.joangary.com. As the founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits, I have the privilege of hearing the stories of the remarkable work being done every single day by an amazing group of kind and generous leaders around the globe. I want you to hear their stories too, uplifting and inspiring. Now there's something we could use a whole lot more of, right? And that's why I want to introduce you to the Leadership Lab's own podcast, Your Nonprofit Life. In each episode, our lab's director of member experience, Laura Zelke, interviews a leader of a small nonprofit, offering you the opportunity to hear about their unique path into the sector, learn about the important work they're doing, and be inspired by their passion and determination to change the world in ways large and small. Sample this dose of hope at yournonprofitlife.com, or you can find it on your favorite podcast app. We are having a... Um a very thoughtful conversation with Lynn Twist. She is a recognized global visionary um, committed to um, a vast array of causes from alleviating poverty, ending hunger, supporting social justice, environmental sustainability. Um, and her roots are in fundraising, um, but it has brought her um, a deep understanding 
of the sector, people's relationship with money, and the social tapestry of the world and the historical landscape of the times we're living in. Um, so I'd be, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about Mother Teresa. Um, you had the privilege of spending some time with her. Um, and you and I spoke about so a little bit about the power and authority of the social prophet. And I wonder, uh, so I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about that experience of, of what, what kind of work you did with Mother Teresa, what you learned and, um, where does authority come from? To talk a little bit about power and authority as a social prophet and sort of where its roots are. Um, well, should I do Mother Teresa or uh, power yes. and authority? With, start uh, Mother, Mother Teresa. Teresa. Yes. I'll start with Mother Teresa then because power and authority has a different uh, ring to it for me. Um, well, she... no, I, yeah, I think uh, I, I was curious. I'll tell you why I asked the question in that order is because um, uh, she, she owns a certain authority so I, I was, some people look to it by title or by institutional mm. affiliation and that, and, and my sense is that that's obviously not the case um, with this particular individual. So I thought that's why it would be useful to start just by uh, just talking a little bit about her. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, that that's clarifying. So um, yeah, well, I was raised as a Catholic, so um, she just like walked on water and glowed in the dark in my view as a child. I just thought, oh my God, I want to be a nun. I want to be like Mother <laughs> Teresa. She's like the coolest thing. And then I saw the nun story, uh, which was a movie with Audrey Hepburn. And yep. she had that beautiful face and in her black and white habit, I thought, oh my God, now I have to be a nun because I look just like Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> so I had um, this sort of thing. I got to tell I you thought, something. <laughs> having been, I was taught by nuns through 12th grade and I'm saying that Audrey Hepburn was an outlier. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> well, anyway, I, I thought Mother Teresa was just the bee's knees. Um, and, and I didn't have that much, you know, I wasn't so big on the Pope, but I thought Mother Teresa was it. Catholicism, that was what it was really about. And um, even though I didn't remain a very good Catholic, uh, I eventually ended up working in India on, uh, for the Hunger Project on ending world hunger. And I had the great opportunity through an Indian friend of mine, a woman named Indira Koitra, to meet Mother Teresa. And it was just like, oh my God, I thought it was like, I was going to die and go to heaven right there. And um, my my first meeting with her was interrupted. Uh, it was a very quiet meeting in a hallway at the uh, in Delhi at her uh, orphanage for, for girls. Uh, our meeting got interrupted by a very, very wealthy couple, uh, Indian couple, uh, a very large Sikh man who had a turban on and all kinds of jewels on his fingers. Uh, he even had a ring on his thumb, I remember. Mm-hmm. And and his, what I assume to be his wife, also a very, very large Indian woman with a very opulent sari and, and had all kinds of jewels on her. And she was over made up and over perfumed and overweight and overbearing. And he was over perfumed and overweight and overbearing and over the top over, and over everything. Over. over, over, over. And I was, here I was with little tiny Mother Teresa, you know, she was four, four foot three. We were huddled over a little wooden table in the hallway at uh, having a private meeting. And this noise and this kind of odor came from behind me. And these people barged into our meeting, this couple, man and woman. And the woman um, demanded a photograph with Mother Teresa. Apparently, they had had some sort of an earlier encounter and didn't get a photograph. So she handed an Instamatic. If you remember those Instamatic cameras to me, this was a long time ago. Oh, the ones where the photos spit out? 
No, no, just a little. Oh, like a disposable way. Yeah, yeah disposable. disposable. Yep. She handed me this little disposable camera, and she she sort of pulled Mother Teresa. I, you know, I I just can't believe she did this by the elbow up from the chair, the little wooden chair where we were sitting together, and put her next to her against a, a, a blank wall, and then her husband on the other side. So this big giant Sikh man, just I mean, he sure is well over six five and very wide. And then little baby Mother Teresa, you know, <laughs> little tiny Mother Teresa, all bent over 4.3 in, in next to him. And then this huge woman, she was just almost as big as this man. And she was also quite wide as well as tall. And they handed me this Instamatic camera, the woman did, and said, take the picture. And so I took a picture. And then the woman did what I thought was just unforgivable. I can hardly tell you this. She took her um, her her hand and she pulled up Mother Teresa's chin like <laughs> Mother Teresa had osteoporosis, as you remember, she was all bent over. And she said, chin up, Mother Teresa, we want to see your face. And she put her hand under and pulled Mother Teresa's chin up and then made me, told me to take another picture. And I just, I, if I had a gun, I would have, <laughs> anyway, I took the picture and then they left. They grabbed the camera. They left. They didn't say thank you. They didn't, they didn't say anything to her, anything to me. They were just rude, untitled, ugly, wealthy, over-the-top, disgusting people. And I right. ended up having this feeling of fury come through my body. My, my, my brain, my veins were popping in my forehead. And then Mother Teresa sat down at the table as if this hadn't even happened. And she wow. was as sweet and kind and loving as before. And I was just boiling mad, trying to control myself. And we completed our meeting. And then I got in a, a, in a car going back to, to uh, New Delhi. This is an old Delhi. And on the way, I'm just fuming about these people, having just been with Mother Teresa, the most loving, kind, beautiful, saintly person on earth. And I had had this beautiful encounter with her before they came. And I had this realization in the car. I was in the presence of the greatest unconditional love I've ever experienced in my life. Mm -hmm. And then moments later in the greatest experience of hate and anger that I can remember having in my life, right. all in the presence of Mother Teresa. And she remained totally loving throughout. In fact, she saw Christ in those people's faces. She saw Christ in every face, every face. Yeah, Those rude, entitled, obnoxious people. So I went back to my my hotel and I wrote her a letter and I thanked her for the teaching uh, of watching, of realizing that I'd experienced this love and hate in her presence. And she only expressed love, only exhibited love. And she wrote me back. So this is a really important story for me as a fundraiser and hopefully this will help be helpful to people. She wrote me back and she said, um, never forget that the vicious cycle of wealth can be as intractable and have as much suffering as the vicious cycle of poverty. Hmm. You have a natural leaning towards helping the underserved. You will always do that. That's who you are. But you need to widen your circle of compassion to include the rude, the entitled, the overbearing, the enormously wealthy people who are trapped in a different way. They too are an expression of Christ's love. And, um, it's almost like she gave me the assignment to uh, be a fundraiser for the wealthiest people on earth in a way that I could see the Christ in their face and bring them to the table of love and caring and compassion. 
and do that from my own heart and open my circle of compassion to include every single human being, no matter how their behavior was. And that little letter, and she signed it, M. Teresa. She's decided <laughs> it was in her handwriting. Right. I, I'll never forget it. It's like it changed my entire life. And I became devoted to having people of enormous wealth, and I still am, see that the wealth doesn't belong to them. It never did. They may have earned it. They may have done all kinds of things to acquire it, yep. but ultimately belongs to all of us. And they have the opportunity, the great privilege to ennoble their lives and lives of others by sharing it where it will do the most good. And so my mother, Teresa, that was my first encounter. And then I became completely devoted to working with her. Yeah, I um, the notion that the money doesn't actually belong to them is fascinating, actually. I mean, it's a, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a hurdle for a lot of people. And I also, I just, just to broaden just a little bit what you said, um, that if you are not, you know, uh, not a Christian, it's not necessarily, you're not excluding non-Christians from the, the, from the tale you tell, right? No, definitely not. In fact, Mother Teresa, her um, faith was so all-encompassing, her uh, sense of inclusion. If you think about her, she, she didn't really start the Missionaries of Charity until she was 46 years old, and she died at age 88. Wow. Um, and before that, she was a kind of an unremarkable teacher in a private girls' school in India for wealthy Indian girls, and then she became the principal. And then she realized her calling. She got a, a call from God, she said, uh, and it took her two years to start her own order to help the poorest of the poor. But she always knew um, that uh, God... Uh, in her way of looking at God or the universe, whatever you want to call it, the higher power, uh, every single living human being is included in the love that, com- that comes from that energy. So she really wasn't even technically Catholic, I would say. Well, Catholic means universal, that word. Yes. But she was a real Catholic. Yes. Uh, it included everybody. Nobody yep. was left out of her love. Yep, yep. Um, so... Um... Let's segue from um, Mother Teresa and that. Can um, I say one more thing about yes, her, Yes, of course, of course. Joan, can I interrupt you? Yes. Because I just want everybody to know she was an amazing fundraiser. <laughs> and we don't think of her that way. We don't, you don't think of Mother Teresa and money in the same sentence. Right. Um, but, but she started um, something like 400 and, let's see. 405 missions in 103 countries in 44 years. And she raised millions and millions and millions of dollars to do that. And she called herself God's pencil. And she was an awesome fundraiser. So I don't really think people know. That's a really good friend. That's such an important framing. Um, (laughs) If it probably... Mother Teresa asked people for money. You You didn't say no to her. Nobody said no to her. So, you know, right. she really was an awesome fundraiser and I saw her do it. So I just that's, want to say that. Uh, no, I, I'm so glad you stopped me because that's a that's a pretty big headline of this podcast. <laughs> um, actually, I, I don't think we will, but we could have called this podcast Mother Teresa was a great fundraiser. Um, <laughs> so um, the other thing um, I didn't mention in your bio, but I want to talk about for just a few minutes, uh, I want to... Uh, I definitely want to close with some hearing some advice from you to our listeners about a little bit more about COVID and going into 2021. But before we do that, um, 
You are, um, it didn't, we didn't say this in your bio, but you're someone who's really studied the power of women's leadership. And, um, you know, I think about the, um, the countries that have navigated COVID most successfully, ever, the, the, the articles you read, that those are the ones that are largely run by women. And I, I wonder if you might speak to the role women play in our sector. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that the vast majority of folks drawn to the sector of women. And clearly there are issues of like ec- pay equity and things like that that are at play. But for you, is, is, there, is there more there about what draws women to this sector of the social profit? Well, I would say that it's um, more natural for women to uh, work from the heart than the mind. Um, I'm, I'm saying that because Indigenous people have really taught me that the mind and the heart of humanity have been separated. And it's almost like the patriarchy is run by the mind uh, and that, that, it, that patriarchy has gotten so intense that it uh, has no respect for the heart. Um, and uh, one of the things that the, the social profit work provides is, is a way to meet the longing of the heart. And I think women and uh, the feminine in all of us, in men too, mm-hmm. is more uh, akin to the ways of the heart. Um, and one of the things that I think is why the, the sector has been diminished and been called the non-profit, not-for-profit, and uh, is not well compensated is because it's the, the fact that women and men are not in equal balance yet. And we aren't in equal balance with masculine and feminine. There's a wonderful prophecy I may have told you when we talked before, but I'll, I'll say it now it's a Baha'i prophecy that says the 21st century is the century when um, the bird of humanity will come into its fullness. And they say that the bird of humanity has two great wings, a male wing and a female wing. And the male wing has been fully extended, fully expressed for centuries. Uh, and the female wing in the bird of humanity has been folded in and not yet fully extended, not yet fully expressed. While the male wing has been fully expressed and in fact has become overdeveloped, overmuscular, and ultimately has become violent. And therefore the bird of humanity has been flying in circles. And in the 21st century, the prophecy says the feminine wing, the female wing in all people will fully extend itself and the male wing will then be able to relax and the bird of humanity, rather than flying in circles, will for the first time in centuries begin to soar. And I think the 21st century is the Sophia century, the century when um, uh, wisdom will become as important as knowledge, when the heart will have equal standing with the mind, when the feminine and the masculine will come into balance and the patriarchy will begin to fall in, and, and d- dissolve into a kind of balance between female and male, uh, not just men and women, but in all of us. And I think that's a lot of what COVID is demanding of us um, because men have been kind of forced to be the become this overmuscular, almost violent part of our society to keep the bird of humanity afloat, you could say, if you use that a metaphor as an analogy. So um, yes, I think women are key to the future. I think the feminine archetype is where we must go to get through the next 50 years. And um, I think that is what's happening on this planet. And 
I love that you're a woman. I love that I'm a woman, but I'm talking to men too. Yes. Um, yeah, this is, this is the time when the feminine, the female, the heart, compassion, all of that needs to have equal standing with the mind, with rational thinking. And it's really, really critical for the future of life. That's what and I, I think. And I, and I just, as a, as a, a quick aside, I don't, I'm, I'm not hearing in this, I mean, it sounds very binary the way that you're describing it, but you're also talking about heart and mind, you're, uh, you know, so, right, so you're, you're really, you're talking about this in a, in a context of, for those who might say that's a very binary construct, I think you would, you would make a different argument, wouldn't you? Yes, I would. Thank you for correcting me. And that's true. I'm really talking about wholeness. I'm really talking about coming into the fullness. You know, you could say, that 2020 was a year that humbled every single living human being, taught us that we're one biology because we hadn't really gotten that, and um, sobered us uh, and gave us and revealed all the things that we weren't willing to face. So it gave us what I'll call 2020 vision, really, for the first time, the first 20 years of this third, this is the first century in the third millennium and the first 20 years were maybe designed to give us 2020 vision so that we can come of age in the 21st century, maybe in 2021. That would be good if we could come of age in 2021 um, and really deal with what we haven't ever dealt with before and become whole in our approach to being human. Um, so that's another way of talking about what I think is going on. Nice. So um, so as a final thought here, let's talk about 2021. And um, I, I would love for any um, advice that you might have for our listeners based on what you know about the sector and what you've seen and learned about individuals who stand up and how to get them out of the stands. You know, you're talking to a group of people um, who have been in the trenches and have lived through an unimaginable year um, with more ahead. And um, just um, wonder if you have any final thoughts, either um, motivational or even actionable. Either one will take whatever you got for us, Lynn. Okay. <laughs> well, um, let's see. I think it's for those of us who are really at work to make this world work for everyone with no one, nothing left out. That's a wonderful phrase from Buckminster Fuller. I think this is a time of listening and passionate, deep, authentic listening. Because what's what we've seen in the last, just this last little while is hurt turns into anger. Anger turns into hate. Hate turns into violence. Right. Yes, we and have if you go that. all the way back to where it starts, it starts from hurt. And when people are hurt and we can't hear their call for help, when people are hurt and we ha- can't hear their cry, it turns to anger, which turns to hate, which turns to violence. And how to get at the very root of all that is mm-hmm. to listen, listen, listen with, with, with heart and passion and openness and um, wonder, actually, curiosity, uh, uh, you know, engage really in listening. So, and I think it's really, really important for people who are at work now to realize that we haven't heard many, 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 many cries for help. Yep. Um, And uh, that's what we need to do. That's what I would recommend. Um, I think that's a... um 
uh, I think that's wise and an excellent way for us to um, to end. And I I hope that everyone who um, is listening really heard <laughs> what Lynn had to say today. Um, it's it's an interesting thing to to think to yourself. Well, I have a guest today on my podcast who is a uh, you know just a just a, a has. 70 years of fundraising experience and what you actually got was a a, a conversation that was really quite um, profound and philosophical. And, um, uh, and I really appreciate this, um, these reflections and insights. And I, I have every confidence that um, uh, the light inside each of our listeners just got a little brighter today as a result of our conversation. So Lynn Twist, thank you so much for being with me and for the investment you make as a social profit every day. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joan. And thank you, everyone. Uh, that's it for today. Um, uh, lots to think about. My goodness, so much food for thought. Um, but just I, I, the big take, one of the big takeaways for me, in addition to the fact that Mother Teresa was a great fundraiser, is just what a gift it is to ask people for money. And um, think about that today as you um, as you as you head back to work, and um, just know that there are two people here today, Joan Gary and Lynn Twist, who are champions for you for your success and for the impact you're having in the world. Um, Have a good rest of the day and thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thanks for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.